Hello, and welcome to the Little Brown School and Library Podcast. I'm Victoria Stapleton. Our guest on this episode is Natasha Tarpley. She is an author with a truly enduring legacy of excellence in children's literature with such titles as The Me I Choose to Be, Bippity Bop Barbershop, and I Love My Hair. First published in 2001, I Love My Hair has been in print, on shelves, and on laps ever since. It features Kiana, a girl expressing joy in who she is. Recently, Natasha brought Kiana back for a new series of books that highlight the simplest but often most profound moments of happiness in a child's life, that of home, family, neighborhood, and friends, with the title Kiana Loves Her Family, illustrated by Charnel Pinkney Barlow. If you do not already know the joy of Natasha Tarpley, you are in for a treat. Welcome, Natasha. Hi. The cover of I Love My Hair and the cover of Bippity Bop Barbershop, I love those kids. Yes. I want to know about those kids. And that's great for the illustrations. And those covers bring you in. And it was the same with the Me, I Choose Read. But then you read the books. And we'll get to that in a second because just so, they're so fun to read. They really are. (laughs) But when I think about a Natasha Tarpley book, I think about joy and enjoyment. And these are not always the same thing, at least I don't think. Has there been a specific element that you want to communicate to young readers and families in your books and the books that you've done? Is there a through line to the work that you've produced? Absolutely. And I think those things that you mentioned, joy and enjoyment, were sort of the foundation of, you know, why I started writing children's books. I I tell this story a lot, but My mom, when I was growing up, wrote little stories about me and my siblings. There are four of us. I'm the oldest. And those stories were so cool and so important because they connected the things that we loved to do, the things we were curious about, with books, with stories, so we could see ourselves as the center of a story. Now, consciously, as a kid, I wasn't thinking in those ways. As an adult now, I look back and I said, wow, that was, that was masterful. That was wonderful mm-hmm. to have had that. And so when I started writing books for, for kids, I had come out of college writing uh, about ways of elevating and expanding narratives around black experiences. Mm-hmm. So my first book was an anthology of writings called Testimony, which... I was the editor of, and which I curated uh, work, sending out letters all over the country to black professors, black student unions, kids, other students that I knew, because I went to a predominantly white college, Mm -hmm. and I was really trying to find myself. And I guess going back a little bit, as a kid, writing and reading were the ways that I kind of navigated the world. So, you know, I, I was a really shy kid, wasn't the kid that spoke up in class a lot. You know, as the, as the oldest of four kids, there was always someone around. So books and reading and writing functioned on a, a number of levels. So there was the, the retreat aspect of reading a book where I could go by myself and just, you know, have that space to crawl into a book and experience another world. 
And then there was the writing element, which allowed me to express myself and to find my voice in another way that allowed me to also make connections uh, with other people. And that I got a lot of positive feedback from, from my teachers, from my parents. So that was sort of how I began and how those things functioned in my life. So when I got to college and I was feeling kind of lost and, you know, what does this mean? I was like, I'm going to use my writing to establish these connections. And so I created this anthology project. I reached out. I ended up getting work by writers now who are sort of these illustrious figures like ta Coates, Jelani Cobb, Kevin Young, all of these folks. We were all kind of writing and thinking around the same issues and, and time. Um, so it was a really a, a snapshot also of a generation of, of black writers, but it also allowed me to create a network of, of people. So I'm kind of losing my thought now. <laughs> no, but I think that's really, it speaks to both of those elements. I mean, just thinking of joy and enjoyment of just making those connections, because I think sometimes people will look at your books and think, oh, that's very simple and that's very sweet and there's not that much to it. But no talking about that tradition of being with your with your mom and this the reading and writing from an early age and storytelling from an early age locating yourself within that community yes. and then branching out I, I into testimonials with with those other writers i think that's such an interesting way to to present that trajectory of your of your yeah. writing life but then let's yeah so now you, you've kind of got me back on where I was trying to get to in the first place. So when I started, that's sort of the background. And there's always this desire, whether it's for adults or children, to kind of expand and um, create new ideas of how we exist in the world. And so when I started writing for children, this was at a time in the late 90s where I felt like just everything out there that featured black kids was so heavy that it was, you know, everything was a message. And, and many people have spoken about this, you know, mm -hmm. even more recently. And I knew what it was like for me growing up as a black kid. Yes, the world outside, you know, is not uh, very often a friendly place. But within this little world of our family, of our neighborhood, uh, we had a wonderful, joyful experience. We were encouraged to use our imagination, our creativity, our curiosity. And so I wanted to bring that kind of energy into the books that were featuring Black children. Um, and so I Love My Hair really is not about hair at all. I mean, it, it happens to touch on a subject that unfortunately black kids are still grappling with mm -hmm. and the messages that they get from society about how they look and comparisons to, to other groups. But it really is about, you know, your own creativity, loving who you are, finding those things about yourself that make you unique, but that also make you happy, that, that allow you to feel that sense of joy and creativity. And that, you know, I've been thinking of brandy. <laughs> a lot lately. If I were to have a brand, it might be that my books are about giving kids the tools to be the architects of their own stories. So it's, it's like, how do you locate those things in yourself 
that you then bring out into the world? I love that answer. When I had started thinking about this, I'm like, it's about joy and it's about, but are they the same thing and how do they connect? And you've helped crystallize that in my mind about just taking simple pleasure in the fact of your physical existence and how you physically are in the world, however that is, and connecting yes. it with those, with those spiritual for lack of a better term, or intellectual aspirations of meaning that I just, that really are so present in your books that I love so much. Or even energetically, you know, how do you bring that energy out? You know, that whole idea of energy is really important. Um, and how you tap into that energy, bring, how you allow other people to tap into it within themselves, and then bring it out into the world and, and hopefully change the, the energy in the world, change the, the way that we relate to each other on an energetic level as well. So, okay. Yes. I'm yeah. encouraged on a great, on a rainy, rainy day. I knew you would get that. I knew you would get it. Yeah. Uh, thinking so much about that energy and thinking uh, about those positive aspects. I just, you're helping me rethink a few things which I think is really important as we are in this time in our country, you know, for so many reasons, but I'm actually thinking right now of the situation with the, the pandemic and mm -hmm. how kids, uh, these young readers have been dislocated or relocated in so many ways in their physical circumstances, whether they have been able to go to school, the circumstances in which they've been going to school, whether that is, under duress or voluntarily, just so many different mm -hmm. permutations of it, the dislocation of that, relocation of that, and the energy that we're all thinking about now as we come out of that period yeah. and how we'll be in the world and taking those opportunities from those, from those circumstances. Yeah, absolutely. So now more than ever, Natasha Tarpley, people, that's, that's, <laughs> that is my message to you right now. So, Speaking of energy and active, being active and engagement with the community, your books are read-alouds. They are meant to be read together in the home. They are meant to be read together in the classroom or the library. They're meant to be read aloud. That I don't discount the lovely illustrations of E.B. Lewis or the fantastic photography of the Bethancourts or the very charming pictures that Chernell has provided for the new books. And there are your other works with other houses, but it really begins with the word for you. And just to speak your words is such beautiful rhythm, and they're so easy. And I can think of young readers, there's not, I'm going to say persnickety, because that's not a child-friendly word. <laughs> it is, there's, though, because it's so cool in the sounds. It is a great Kid word. <laughs> it is actually. I was sitting there thinking, oh, that kind of is a great kid word. But there might not be kids who are like, are you know, when they're reading on the page, they may not be able to to read that word. Yeah. But there's just something about the read aloudness of your work. Can you talk a little bit about the process of coming up with these read aloud? I mean, how do you compose this? Yeah, you know, I guess I didn't really think about them as read alouds, but I come from a poetry background. So the beginnings of my writing career were 
you know, was writing poetry, in, in mm-hmm. fact. And so I think I take a lot of that from that, you know, practice into the, especially working with picture books and, and that kind of space where, you know, you have such a small space to work in. So the words have to really have resonance and meaning. But the other piece of it is is a musicality that is so important to me. I, I love music. I'm not a musician, but I love music. I can't write listening to music, but in order to write, I kind of listen to music to get myself into a space where where I can write. Um, and so all of that bring, you know, I bring all of that into the work that I do. And I'm so happy that you mentioned that because when you write picture books, you know, one of the things that I, you know, have to constantly remind myself of is that, you know, the words do matter. You know, the book that I just wrote won an, an award for an illustration for the illustrations. <laughs> And I've never been acknowledged, you know, for awards or anything um, in terms of my writing. And so it's always nice to hear the feedback from readers, um, from parents and families, and from you, Victoria, thank you, (laughs) to acknowledge that because I do put a lot of love into that that process. They have a wonderful, I I call this mouthfeel. Yeah. Because they just do have such a wonderful flow when you're reading a Natasha Tarpley book. It's just, as you're doing that read aloud, it just flows quickly and the page turns work well. And I know that's partly editorial, but you're so expert at this now. I know you're thinking about the page turns as you're composing the entire story. So thinking about, you've mentioned that you listen to music to get into the mood that that. I'm interrupting the next question to you. Come to, what are you listening to when you're getting in the mood? What's the music that you're, that you, that's really getting you in the mood to write these books? I listen to a lot of jazz. Um, and there are just so many people that I love that I'm just not going to list them. But there's a great uh, radio station, uh, WBGO, which is out of Newark, New Jersey, which is always on my computer. That's what I'm always listening to. And sometimes... I'm not a religious person. I didn't grow up in a church environment, but sometimes I will listen to kind of black gospel music Mm -hmm. that to me has, it encapsulates a, a certain element of history, you know, not just in the words of words about or to the creator, Mm -hmm. but the emotion of that music and even the yearning of that music that to me um, really touches on some of the things that we've experienced throughout our history, the challenges, the joys. So I, you know, I'm not an, a gospel music expert, but there are things that I will always listen to. Like for example, Yolanda Adams has a song called Even Me, which is a rendition I think of a Puritan hymn or something, Shaker hymn or some, one of those traditions and you listen to it, and she just has totally remade it into something that is so close to that African-American tradition. Um, so th- those are the kinds of things I listen to. I also, when I was a kid, I was um, really into punk rock, and I still do listen to that kind of music. Uh, I've got a T-shirt on. You can't see it. It's Bad Brains, which is a black punk rock 
band. <laughs> so I carry that tradition too, that, that sense of like energy and just, you know, screaming, but with intention and just putting that on the world because I'm such a quiet person. So that music also helps me to tap into that loudness and that forcefulness that I don't always have in my own life. <laughs> okay, so just because I listened to my pal uh, Leslie, I can never remember Leslie's last name because I think of Leslie with Sparky, her dog. But <laughs> Leslie grew up in uh, northern Ohio, and she does a show sometimes on WFMU, which is about northern Ohio punk. Oh, wow. And Northern, and it's, it, there's just such a specificity of that music, some of which I know from my own growing up in Portland, you know, little local things would, yeah. would pass around. But uh, I was thinking about that, and she's trying to access a particular feeling that is not nostalgia so much as right. connecting to a community and to, to nonverbal expressions yes. in the musicality of it. But I also like your note of screaming with intention and thinking of your poetry background, how you're looking at those different modes of communication and connection building that is present in your books. And I, I don't know why you can't, you know, think about punk rock with some of your work. It's very, uh, you know, just sort of that honesty, that pointedness and honesty yeah. about it is really attractive. So I love hearing that, that that's part of it. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. Now I'm going to have, go, have some more thoughts. Now, to my real <laughs> question. <laughs> I, a number of years ago, I was talking to Marianne Hoberman. I think it was for a podcast episode, but I can't re remember exactly what it was. Because I used to talk to Marianne Hoberman a lot. Um <laughs> She is also a, a children's poet, and she's done a lot of books that involve, you know, you read to me, I'll read to you, and that sort of call and response sort of uh, modality. But she mentioned that sometimes she would, com she would compose walking through the woods and speaking. And I know other children's book writers, it's primarily writing. So, you know, either, you know, they do their finger, they let their fingers do the walking with a pen and paper, or they do typing. Ha and I don't, you know, however way you do it is yours, but I'm always fascinated by people who have a poetry background and have the read aloud quality, the performative quality. How do you actually compose your work? Huh. That's an interesting question. Um, in the thinking part, a lot of it takes place, um, you know, in addition to the music, I, I, I used to run more than I do now because I had knee injury, but I used to run a lot but I mm -hmm. still walk a lot and so I'm always you know um thinking as I'm walking my mother used to tell me well you're, you're trying to write a whole book in your head because I would just keep all of this stuff in my head mm -hmm. and try to work everything out before I put it on the page and I've since learned how to put things on the page and empty them out of my head so I can put more stuff in my head <laughs> but <laughs> but that's pretty much it and then you know I, I most writers will tell you this I have a, a pretty messy first draft and just start pairing away you know at at what's what seems like it's not working like I'll you know especially with with more poetic text it's there's a certain rhythm or musicality that I might be going for 
and there's certain words that, you know, may not fit as well or, you know, so it's, it, it is kind of putting together a puzzle sometimes as mm-hmm. well, you know, based on how the piece is, is shaping. Do you ever read aloud the manuscripts as you're editing and revising or you're thinking about pairing away? That's funny. I rarely read my own work aloud. Um, I can hear it in my head, mm-hmm. but I rarely sit down and read it aloud. Yeah, I've heard different ways of doing it, and just because I can't write anything longer than an ad, <laughs> <laughs> I, I I confess that I'm deeply fascinated by this process, and and hearing you speak about your process, because you know it is all about me. Uh, before I was in children's publishing, I worked with books printed before 1500, and one oh, of wow. the things that you see in those books are cues to performance because most people did not read a giant mass of words. There were pictures to go along with it, but also think there were performance cues in whether that's a big book or whether it was a small pamphlet. And, And thinking about the performance and reception and the community building of these works is always interesting to me when I talk to an author. Uh, about how they write things, especially picture books, which are meant to be shared. If you don't mind me asking, what is an example of, of a cue to performance? Like, what would what would something say? So, in my previous life of being in graduate school, I was working at a library, and we had Martin Luther's galleys, and there would be little fingers huh. drawn in red that would be an emphasis. Uh, of it, or there would okay. be specific notations built into the text about, you know, up or down or facing, or, you know, just emphasis points. So there would be yeah. little moments. Then sometimes there would be, similar to a page turn in an illustrated book, there would be uh, a leading word at the bottom of a page that would tell you what's the first word of the next page so that then you would okay. not interrupt. Yeah. Yeah. Then sometimes there's an image on that page that then you think about it guides you in what to emphasize in your reading of the text as opposed okay. to the showing of it. So there's an interesting element there. Yeah. That can be, you know, that's really interesting because reading isn't always an eight and a half by eleven or a nine by whatever yeah. wall of text. It's it's often so much more. Yeah, that is fascinating to me. I, I, the other thing that I do in my work is explore different, is what I'm doing now, is kind of exploring different ways of expression um, in writing as well as, you know, looking at the technologies that are available mm-hmm. um, and how do you extend the experience of a book or reading, quote-unquote, mm-hmm. Um, beyond a page, you know, and, and I think it's, it's important to have the, the tangible connection and the real life connection, but, you know, really interested now, I'm really interested now and all of these other elements that, that can add different layers to the experience. I, I, I do think that's one of the most interesting parts of of thinking about literacy. I'm a big believer in Gardner and the different forms of intelligences. And we're spoken, we've spoken a little bit about walking and having the whole book in your head while you're walking yeah. energy. And I do think about kinetic intelligence and kinetic ways of processing the world. So I'm 
Yeah. I was thinking, how would you connect movement to that? Because that is some way, sometimes how I process the world myself. But I know you do lots of school visits. Uh, and I've heard from people talking about how much they've enjoyed your school visits. Um, how has that been for you? And how, what have you learned over the years about your books? And about and have you, have you changed anything? As a, well, I don't want to say, did an eight-year-old mouth off to you once and you changed your entire career? Because, you know, nobody does that. That's a movie. But have you... <laughs> <laughs> I do think I I heard a story about somebody at a con having a bad conference experience and they changed how they did how they worked and I was like really mm. but is there something you've learned from your primary readers who are kids as as you've done these visits over the years and and interacted with the those readers is there something you've learned that's made you a better writer and artist Yeah I feel like I'm still learning when it comes to doing school visits when I first started doing them I was so terrified that I could not sleep the night before, you know, because I had written a couple of um, books for adults earlier in my career, right before I Love My Hair came out, which was my first picture book. And in that process, you know, I felt very comfortable reading and speaking with adults. I didn't, but for kids, I felt this whole other level of pressure, or I put that pressure on myself because I felt like, I have to give these kids something. I have to bring something. And I knew just from seeing other authors that some of them are very performative in their work. They have their costumes. They have all of this stuff that they bring. And again, going back to that whole idea of I'm just, I'm a pretty quiet person. I do not like being, you know, sort of in the spotlight. And so it's still a very difficult thing for me to do. I feel like whenever I have a school visit, there's sort of this ex, you know, I leave my body a little bit because <laughs> I have to kind of get into another space to do it. But I think one of the things that I've learned over time is that the best school visits that I've had are, are ones where, and this is sort of a more technical thing, but ones where the teachers are engaged, where the there is some level of where, for example, kids are asked to prepare questions in advance so that we can have a really productive conversation. And then the other thing that I've learned is just to kind of be myself and allow kids to be themselves and not have these huge expectations uh, or, you know, around, well, I need to tell you this and communicate this to you. Because a lot of times when you do that, for example, when I was doing some school visits around I Love My Hair, I'm often asked to go into schools that are underserved, predominantly black areas, which I love. It's wonderful. But I think sometimes in those areas, there's this expectation, this externalized expectation that you have to give these kids the, a message or you have to tell them, you know, X, Y, Z and give them all of this stuff. When in reality, those kids just want to be kids just like anyone else. They want to have fun. And so I would go there and talk about, you know, talk to them with I Love My Hair, which sometimes I feel gets a little bit into sort of the issues of like self-esteem and everything, which are important. But, you know, I had a kid come up to me and he just wanted to tell me about his pet hedgehog. And so there's got to be room 
for those kinds of interactions and not go in as the author with this huge agenda, there are things that I absolutely want to do, but there has to be room for that interaction and expression that kids, they, they have it and they want the space, you know, to be able to, you know, interact with you on that level as well. So it's sort of like going back to the beginning when you were a child and within your family, creating that space where you were all sharing. Absolutely, yeah. I never thought of that, but yeah. The stories and sharing the stories and just having enjoyment in your neighborhood and in your space and translating that enjoyment into joy. Yes, absolutely. Wonderful. (laughs) As I have tied that into a bow and made the circle be unbroken... Yes. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining us today, Natasha. I really appreciate your time. Uh, Thank you. I really enjoyed the conversation. Gentle listeners out there in the digital universe, Natasha Tarpley is the author of many, many fine books. Bippity Bop Barbershop. Come on, that title, please. I Love My Hair, a book to which I have a complex relationship of my own hair and my lack of love for it, but also uh, The Me I Choose to Be, and more recently, Kiana Loves Her Family. Please don't sleep on this book. It are just, just gorgeous and lovely. And the upcoming Kiana Loves Her Friend. Can I mention that this is sort of an extension of I Love My Hair, that this is, is inspired by this character from I Love My Hair, the protagonist, Kiana? Mm-hmm. And it brings her front and center. And so you can see elements of who she is in that first book. But now you really get to know her and her family um, in this new Kiana Loves uh, series. And it is a series, people. And you will need to, to, to read all of them just because they are that darn cute and charming. Mm-hmm. The perfect marriage of enjoyment and joy. So uh, I love my hair. Bippity Bop Barbershop, The Me I Choose to Be, Kiana Loves Her Family, Kiana Loves Her Friend, coming up next year, so pre-order it now. Thank you so much, Natasha, for being with us. Thank you very much. All of you people out there, we'll see you next time. Thank you for joining us. Bye now. Bye now.